Hello and welcome to COVIDcast, a weekly Lowy Institute podcast for anyone interested in understanding the effect of coronavirus on global politics and international life. My name is Jonathan Pryke. I am director of the Pacific Islands program at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. As the COVID crisis unfolds, we are sitting down every week with experts from a range of fields to discuss the implications of coronavirus for the world. You can find all the previous episodes on the homepage of our website. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dave Sharma. Dave has been the Liberal member for the federal seat of Wentworth in New South Wales since 2019. A former diplomat, he served in Papua New Guinea and the United States and was Australia's ambassador to Israel between 2013 and 2017. Dave is co-convener of the recently formed Parliamentary Friends of the Pacific Group and recently penned an op-ed in the Australian newspaper calling for a travel bubble to be established with Pacific Islands that have managed their COVID response effectively. Dave Sharma, welcome to COVIDcast. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Nice to be with you. Well, Dave, let's jump straight in. Uh, Could you quickly sketch out your proposal of a trans-Pacific bubble? Why is this needed and what countries would qualify? How exactly would you expect this thing to be stood up? Yeah, of course. Look, obviously, I mean, most of um, the world is is still in lockdown, so to speak, and it's clear that it's going to be some considerable time before, you know, normal air and travel and, and commerce links are resumed. And I think it makes sense that for countries that are, relatively speaking, further ahead in managing this crisis than others, that those links should be the ones that are first established. And um, we've been fortunate in, in our part of the world, in Australia, New Zealand, and in the Southwest Pacific countries to have had a, a very low number of um, COVID-19 cases. And that's to the credit, I think, of, of all governments and health systems and medical professionals. Uh, and I can see in a situation where um, all of our countries are, um, have the virus very much contained and controlled. And so I'd like to see the air links re-established, particularly with our Pacific neighbours for whom tourism and trade with Australia and New Zealand is such an economic lifeline. Mm. Well, uh, as an analyst on the region, and in light of the good response by and large from the Pacific in containing the health threat of COVID-19, I'm far more anxious about the economic devastation trailing in the wake of the virus. So from that perspective, uh, a travel bubble does seem like a a no-brainer, but it wouldn't be without its challenges. What kind of conditions would you expect to be in place before a travel bubble could take place? Look, I think that's a, a very important um, point that you raise about the risk of that economic devastation. I mean, just, uh, you know, a country like Fiji, for instance, I think it's about 40% of its GDP um, comes from tourism, and that's that's basically gone to zero through this crisis. So, you know, we in Australia are looking at an economic contraction, you know, of somewhere in the sort of high single figures, but Fiji is looking at, um, you know, in you know the twenty to thirty percent range of economic contraction, and it's the same for other countries in the Pacific. So, this will be a very important um, initiative for their economies. Now, in terms of the conditions you'd want to have in place, look, I think there will need to be um, sort of assurance, security, safeguards, and, and testing mechanisms more broadly, because obviously these countries remain vulnerable to infection. It, the likelihood would be that if if an infection was to move, it would be moving from Australia or New Zealand to these countries. So we'd need to have in place some sort of regime that gives them an assurance that the people that are travelling to these countries are COVID-free. Perhaps they're tested shortly before getting on the flight. Perhaps their temperatures are checked. Um, we'd want to have make sure we can track and trace these people in case you know they're asymptomatic or their tests aren't picked up when they travel to these countries. And it might even be that in these countries themselves, they want to contain the tourists to a certain parts of their country, certain islands, certain resorts, so they can contain and track the spread um, more fully. Now, I think a lot of this stuff was actually going to, a lot of the legwork will be done between Australia and New Zealand, because I think that will be the first part of this bubble, the trans-Tasman bubble. 
to be formed. And I think a lot of the protocols that we put in place between Australia and New Zealand will be applicable with some tweaks for the Pacific Islands countries. But I think, you know, we're at the start of the process and these are, these are the discussions we're just beginning to have with our Pacific neighbours. Yeah, I mean, the most immediate risk is with regards to health. I mean, uh, these are, in many ways, vulnerable communities. Uh, the, the case that springs to mind immediately here is, is Samoa, where last year a single New Zealander arrived with measles. And because vaccination rates had been allowed to run down in Samoa because they didn't have any domestic cases, uh, measles quickly spread through the community. With, and we were left with 83 people, many under the age of five, dead. I mean, how, how receptive do you think Pacific nations will be, particularly those that have dodged the virus altogether, like Samoa, to opening up to Australia that may very well still have active cases? I mean, the economic case is very clear, but there is uh, a health case to be made too. No, look, there is. And I think these countries are, um, are absolutely right to put the health interests of their uh, citizens first. And they've all done, um, I think, a, a tremendous job um, at some considerable cost to their economy in, in protecting their populations. And it's it's true because public health infrastructure in the Pacific is, is not as um, established as it is in Australia and New Zealand, uh, these countries are more vulnerable to an outbreak uh, than we are. So, look, my sense of the receptiveness of Pacific nations um, is that there is a degree of interest in this. I know Fiji is certainly interested in it, and I've heard from a number of other Pacific Island countries and then a number of business groups and uh, tourism promotion groups who do business, who rely upon business with Australia. They're obviously very interested as well. Uh, but it will be important that we address concerns and that we offer safeguards. It's not going to be a return to business as usual, that any, any person can turn up to the airport, hop on a flight to Fiji and have a holiday. There will need to be measures put in place, safeguards put in place, so that we can assure these countries that their health will be protected. Um, and it may well be that um, some countries in the Pacific are more interested in this than others, you know, and, and it may well be that we need, to, we need to tailor whatever those safeguards and assurance mechanisms are to the specific requirements and needs and, and demands of each of those countries. I think those are all the discussions that we, we need to be having. Mm. This arrangement wouldn't be without some diplomatic headaches as well. Uh, deciding what countries are in, what countries are left out would be pretty delicate. Uh, ministers in Papua New Guinea, for example, are already calling for inclusion, uh, which seems a bit of a long shot considering its porous border with Indonesia, who also might raise an eyebrow to such exclusive arrangements with the Pacific at the exclusion of our Southeast Asian neighbours. How do you think our colleagues in, in DFAT could, could manage these sorts of uh, very delicate discussions? Well, look, the main point to make here is it would be a sort of a, a consent-based voluntary sort of scheme. So, it, you know, it's not for Australia or New Zealand to decide, you know, which countries are in or which countries are out. Um, it will be up to these countries, I think, to decide whether they're interested in participating uh, in such a scheme. It will be then up for each of us to negotiate with one another about what sort of assurances and safeguards uh, we'd have in place to um, assure, you know, both parties or, or the multiple parties of our own that our own public health interests would be protected. Um, and then it, it might be that at the end of that, some countries do wish to be involved in this and some countries don't. It might be that some countries only participate on the, you know, in certain channels, if you like, on, on a certain basis and other countries don't. So this will, this will have to be, um, you know, it'll be up to the parties to figure this out, uh, themselves. Now, I think, um, with Papua New Guinea, I mean, look, you do you do raise a, a point. Papua New Guinea is the only Pacific island country that that has a land border, and they do share a, a long land border with Indonesia uh, in in Papua, which means there are um, there are little more potential vectors of infection, if you like, for them than some of the Pacific island states. But I, I would say, I mean, you'd you know this part of the world as well, Jonathan, that the the border with Indonesia, although it's long, it's relatively unpopulated, and whilst there is some traditional movement across that border, it's it's quite limited in places. And I think the sorts of places that um, Australians would be travelling to in Papua New Guinea would probably be, you know, the major centres, you know, Port Moresby, 
like Mount Hague and the Highlands and, and the islands and things like that. And that's where Papua New Guineans would be travelling to Australia as well. So I think, um, you know, you could have a situation where you're, you're looking at the, the risks based upon, you know, a province by province arrangement in Papua New Guinea, for instance. Mm. Uh, well, that's uh, encouraging news for our colleagues and friends over in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to be too much of a of a downer here on this proposal. I think it is a fabulous one and I, and I can't wait to be one of the first people on the plane to get back out into the region. But there is another risk on the economic front that Pacific nations may become so enamoured seeing the, the prospect of a bubble as an economic lifeline for their industries and economies that have been, as you say, brutally affected by uh, the COVID crisis, that this idea might put off uh, or prevent critical stimulus and support needed to keep these industries alive in the meantime. In a best case scenario, when do you think such a bubble could actually be implemented? And uh, how much of a post-COVID economic solution for the Pacific would a bubble be? I guess I'd say, first of all, and to the second part of your question, Jonathan, I mean, it's, it's not going to be a, a magic bullet. What we're talking about here is, is a return to, you know, something that more closely resembles business as usual from before the crisis. It's not going to be 100% of business as usual, though, and it's probably not going to be anything on top of that either. It's, it's going to be uh, a little more less and a little more limited, but it will allow some of the um, industries, and particularly those that require the movement of people, most obviously tourism, to get back on their feet again. Now, in terms of how quickly this could actually be implemented, look, I think that will depend very much on, you know, medical and health advice um, in our countries uh, and the level of comfort from governments and, and their publics more, more broadly. Um, and it'll take some time, I think, to sort of work through some of the concerns that all countries will have about this scheme and the safeguards they'll want in place and things like that. But I, I do think... Um, it's much more feasible to see these sorts of normal commerce and trade and tourism links re-establishing themselves between Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific than it is, you know, with other parts of the world, Europe, um, Southeast Asia, North America, South America, for that matter. So uh, I think, I mean, a bubble for this part of the world, we could, we could get this part of the world back to something resembling normal much quicker than we should expect to be able to do so with much of the rest of the world, I think. Um, how soon that could be, though, look, that's that's a bit of a speculative question. I'd be hesitant to put a, a timetable on it, but I'd expect um, towards the end of this year, 2020, I would think we should have some parameters in place that would allow us to, to be commencing this sort of thing and, and possibly even sooner. So if you're a part of the tourism industry in the Pacific, don't bank on this happening in time to save your peak season of tourism arrivals in the winter months of the Australian calendar. No, look, I think that would be, I mean, I really, I don't think we'll be in a position to even be doing the Australian-New Zealand part by by the middle of the year. I mean, look, Australia, as you know, is still basically locked down for domestic tourism. People can't travel on holiday domestically, and that will obviously need to come first. New Zealand is just in the process of easing up on that themselves. So I think it's, you know, it'll happen sequentially in that sense, you know, uh, domestic travel first, Australia-New Zealand travel next, and then more broadly into the Pacific. Well, mate, I think we're all in the same boat here that we, we hope it can happen as, as quickly as is reasonably possible considering the, the health concerns. Uh, but broadening out the conversation out a bit here, this isn't the only way that Australia can assist the Pacific region. What else has the government been doing in helping the dual health and economic crises that the Pacific is facing in 2020? Look, we have been taking our neighbourly responsibilities, if you like, um, very seriously. We've we've reprogrammed significant parts of the aid program to the Pacific to basically to help them address this crisis. So we've been helping them procure um, personal protective equipment, PPE, um, testing kits, uh, ventilators, and we've also so we've been helping them deal with the medical aspects of this crisis. And of course, 
Um, they've managed this well so far and they've come through it well. But if there is a need for more support in that sector, you know, Australia stands ready to assist, as does New Zealand. Uh, we've also been um, providing them or encouraging moves towards things like debt relief, um, some budget support measures with countries like uh, Fiji, um, but also making sure that they're not forgotten in the discussions of the world. So I know that the Prime Minister in his recent um meeting, virtual meeting, if you like, with G20 leaders, uh, made a particular point of singling out the Pacific and saying we must not um, forget this part of the world. So I think we stand um, ready to assist um, and help the Pacific at least get through the health elements of this crisis initially, and we've certainly been providing assistance there, but then also the economic aspects, which you touched upon earlier. Uh, and I think we'll make sure that we've got sufficient flexibility in our aid program, but also in other arms of our assistance to make sure that these countries do come through this intact. And it's you know it's, it's quite fortunate really, or at least a nice silver lining that the the profile of the Pacific has been elevated so significantly within the federal government of Australia over the last few years, and specifically within DFAT and the Office of Pacific being uh, developed explicitly as a whole of government mechanism in in managing our relationship with the Pacific Islands. So, how do you see the the Office of Pacific and and the response working uh, at the federal level? Look, I think it's um, it's. I've been encouraged by it so far. I mean, look, I'm I'm obviously not you know I'm not part of the government, um, so I'm member of parliament, and I don't I'm not involved in decision making at, at close quarters. But I think what I've seen and what I've been uh, briefed on and the, what I've heard through committee work means it, the office of Pacific um, and other parts of um, you know our arms of government, including the Defence Department and elsewhere, are doing a really good job in staying abreast of this crisis in the Pacific, following it very closely. Our embassies and high commissions in the region as well, of course, are doing much the same thing and making sure that we've got the wherewithal and means to assist these countries. I think we've, um, to date, I think um, our institutions uh, have performed quite well in supporting the Pacific through this. Well, it's not just Australia in the region. I mean, on the health front, a key regional partner in all of this, particularly as Australian medical expertise has rightly been focusing in here at home, has been the World Health Organization. Now, the WHO has turned into a bit of a global punching bag in the handling of this pandemic. But how's their performance been in the Pacific region? I think generally speaking, the WHO has been a, a valued partner for us in the Pacific and not just through this crisis, but you know, over multiple years. And we certainly do a lot of work with them on um, public health, on epidemiology, on sanitation, on vaccination programs uh, else in all through the Pacific. And, um, you know, they're uh, effective, competent, responsible, professional organisation. They've been a, a great partner. Um, and I think it's always important when we, you know, have these broader discussions about this crisis and what we can learn from it that we remember um, that element of it. And I think certainly, you know, the government has been clear to highlight the good work the WHO has done. I think, though, that people, and this is not a concern that's unique to Australia, have been a little underwhelmed by elements of the WHO's performance um, through this crisis, particularly their, uh, how quickly they, um, they moved to alert the rest of the world to the risks of this uh, crisis, how quickly they declared it to be a, a global pandemic, all those sorts of things. Now, you know, we're not looking for a scapegoat there or to blame anyone. I think we're asking the legitimate questions. Does the WHO have the tools it needs to perform its job to the level we expect? And I think it's prudent after any sort of event like this, which is, you know, it's it's a global shock of a scale that we have not seen for several decades. It's obviously prudent after an event like this to, to look at your institutions, particularly your international institutions, and to ask some tough and probing questions and to ensure that they're fit for purpose uh, for these sorts of crises in the future. Yeah, and no, I imagine the stock taking won't stop just at the World Health Organization. But uh, back on, on the Pacific, on, on the economic front, uh, you've already detailed just the kind of economic scenario where many major industries 
of often very thin economies are being devastated. Uh, you know, numbers are being thrown around of 10 to 20% economic contraction in some countries, and, and even worse than those that are tourism dependent. Now, these Pacific governments should, of course, be taking uh, action, all action possible to fill the gap, but they lack the economic firepower that we have here at home and simply won't be able to inject the kind of economic stimulus needed on their own. What appetite do you think there is from Australia to do more in this space, be it through grants or loans, to help stimulate these economies? And what role do you see for the IMF and the World Bank, and how can Australia advocate for the Pacific to keep it on the radar of these multilateral institutions when you know, they're going to be dealing with requests from all around the world? Yeah, of course. Look, I think that's an important point. And uh, look, the economic scope of this crisis in the Pacific is one that we're only that these countries are only just coming to grips with. Um, I mean, look, I'd say a few things there. Firstly, you know, we will very much remain their advocates in the councils of the world, including with the international financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and other bodies here. And we'll certainly also be supporting through things like um, debt relief or debt deferral and, and potentially you know, using our aid program to support their budgets more broadly. So I think we're very prepared to do that. I would also say, though, that I think... Um, Unless you've travelled to the Pacific and lived in the Pacific, you might not necessarily appreciate this, but they're very resilient and strong um, countries. They've got strong social safety nets. Uh, A lot of people, as you know, they have access to land. They've got traditional land and traditional farming. Um, And they've they've often um, weathered economic hardship, if you like, much better than, um, you know, even countries like Australia and New Zealand, which don't have sort of the same degree of social and family social safety nets to fall back upon. So, you know, I think... um, we will certainly be helping their governments get their economies back on their feet. We'll be helping them with their budgets if they need it and stimulus measures and certainly financing from the IMF and the World Bank. But I think, I think we'll all be also you know, quite surprised at how well these countries pull through these things themselves. I mean, we see it after natural disasters, which befall the Pacific as well. They're actually quite quick to recover from some of these episodes, which just speaks to the strength and resilience of them as societies. No, I mean, absolutely. I don't think you'll hear many Pacific Islanders complaining about two weeks of quarantine in a hotel. Uh, yeah, as you say, they are, <laughs> they are resilient. They are used to, to uh, greater hardships than we are here in Australia. I, I just want to change tack quickly here and focus in on Bougainville. Uh, when you were a diplomat in Papua New Guinea, you were involved in a lot of work around Bougainville, including the peace agreement in 2001. Since last year's overwhelming referendum result, things seem to have stalled, and we haven't seen a lot of progress on a response from Papua New Guinea to the referendum outcome. What do you think the prospects are for an independence for Bougainville? And what role do you think Australia should play as the negotiations uh, continue? Yeah, look, this is, a, this is an issue close um, to my heart. I, was, I served in, um, in Bougainville with the, with the peace monitoring um, group, as it was called. And then I, I worked in Port Moresby at a high commission on this and including the conclusion of the, the Bougainville Peace Agreement, as it was called, and a higher degree of autonomy for Bougainville with passage through the parliament. So this is something I've been um, intimately involved in throughout my career um, as a diplomat. And um, I'm still deeply attached, I think, to the, the, the province of Bougainville, but also the, the people in um, other provinces of Papua New Guinea. Look, when, when this, this peace agreement came into effect, it was obviously that the question of a referendum and, and Bogleville's ultimate political status was, was kicked down the road, which is not unusual when they have these sorts of peace agreements that settle long-running civil conflicts. And as you pointed out, that referendum took place last year. Bogleville did vote overwhelmingly for independence. But the way that referendum was constructed was it was not self-executing. It doesn't automatically lead to Bougainville becoming independent. There now needs to be a negotiation and discussion with um, the government in, in Port Moresby, the central government. 
Look, I think for Australia's role, look, we didn't um, we didn't advocate for Bougainvilleans to vote one way uh, or the other. Um, we consider this as an internal matter for Bougainville and for Papua New Guinea. Uh, but we obviously have a strong desire to see Papua New Guinea, with or without Bougainville, remain a strong, viable, united country and to support Bougainville in whatever future status it, it undergoes. So I don't think um, it's, it's not really our role to, to rush or hasten the parties. I think that's something that Bougainville and Papua New Guinea need to um, move with at their own pace. And of course, you know, there there is no longer a civil war or civil strife in Bougainville. So I don't think the clock is running in that sense. I think when they're ready to have these sorts of discussions, um, we'll certainly be there to play a supporting role. I mean, something we're very mindful of, though, and I'm, I'm sure Bougainvillians are too, is it's um, running an independent country with a sort of a population of 200,000 people or something is not easy. All the, all the trappings of statehood, uh, all the things that a, a state needs to do, um, you know, you need a sort of certain population base and certain economic base to do those things well. Now, Bougainville would not be unique there. There are many other Pacific islands um, that are independent and have a smaller population than Bougainville. But uh, my advice has always been to Bougainvilleans, don't underestimate the extent of these challenges and independence isn't necessarily uh, the panacea that some think it might be. Absolutely. Well, taking us out of the Pacific, I just want to touch quickly on the question of, of migration. Uh, recent estimates forecast Australia's net migration intake to fall 85% in the next financial year. Labor's immigration spokesperson Christina Keneally has recently made waves calling for this to trigger a review and ultimately reduction of Australia's migration program, and specifically our growing preference for temporary visa holders. What do you think of the Senator's comments, particularly in the context of seasonal workers being one of the most significant new initiatives between Australia and the Pacific in recent decades? I think I agree with you that the seasonal worker program and the, and the scale up in particular has been uh, one of the most significant initiatives with the Pacific. I think it's it's a win-win for both of our countries. It um, allows uh, Pacific workers to come to Australia to, to gain um, new skills, to take those back to their countries and also to support their families and communities home through remittances. So it's a win for the Pacific Island countries. And it's a great win for Australia because um, we have significant labour shortages in certain sectors where Pacific Islanders uh, have, a, have a high degree of skill and a willingness to do the work, um, fruit picking, agriculture, but also caring industries uh, as well. And, you know, they make a great contribution to Australia. Um, and so for me, I think I see this crisis, if you like, as an opportunity to, to further grow that program because a lot of the sources of temporary labour to Australia are going to be much lower. As you mentioned, you know, the, the arrivals, international arrivals into Australia are likely to be significantly lower over the next year or two. And that includes a lot of people who currently do a lot of work for us in fruit picking, in hospitality, in childcare, in elderly care and in other sectors. And so I think this is a great opportunity to, to basically put that Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme on steroids and scale it up uh, significantly um, in a way that will help meet Australia's economic needs as we emerge from this crisis and it will help these Pacific Island countries benefit more. So um, I see this as, a, as one of the silver linings, if you like, to, to this crisis uh, that we've been in, that we can make better use of that scheme, which has been a little slower to, to scale up than I would have liked, um, particularly with, with some countries. I think this gives us a real opportunity to really turbocharge it. Well, you'll hear no complaints from me on, on that front. I think it is a, a fabulous scheme that, as you say, has plenty of room to continue to grow. On a more personal note, how how are you holding up through this crisis? And what is one part of Australian life that you think is going to change for the better coming out of this and what's so far been a pretty bloody brutal 2020? <laughs> Look, I think one enduring change I hope will come out of it is is basically the sort of institutionalisation of more flexible work practices. Um, you know, obviously people have now 
had to get used to and businesses have got to get used to people working from home more in, in businesses where that can that can happen. I appreciate there's somewhere where that's just not possible, but people working from home more, people working flexibly and people managing um, the responsibilities if their parents of schooling their children or looking after their children and contributing from home. And, you know, to be honest, this has been the kind of lack of flexible work practices in Australian workplaces has been one of the biggest causes of our persistent gender pay gap in Australia. It's, it's not so much that um, women are getting paid less for the same work as men. It's just that women are forced to spend more time out of the workforce by and large because they tend to bear the burden of childbearing and child raising responsibilities. And that's largely been because they haven't been able to continue to fulfil whatever their professional role has been and, and balance those responsibilities towards their children. And I've certainly seen that personally in my own life with, with my own wife, but I know many others are the same. So I think now my hope is that these sorts of things will no longer be a, a concession that's made to a part of the workforce. They'll be part of, they'll, they'll be normalised and it will be available to work as men as much as women to do these sorts of things and it won't be a professional hindrance upon their career. And I think um, that would be do a lot to help promote better gender equity in the workplace. Thanks, Dave, very much for sharing your thoughts and your time with us today on this discussion on the Pacific and COVID-19. COVIDcast is a limited edition weekly podcast from the Lowy Institute. I'd like to thank my colleagues Sandra Rigby and Jennifer Reinhardt for production assistance. Please keep an eye on social media channels for details of the next episode of COVIDcast. And you can stay up to date with all the latest developments on coronavirus via the Lowy Institute's widely read digital magazine, The Interpreter. Thank you all for listening today, and thank you, Dave, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Great to be with you, Jonathan.